I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Collider Ladies Night. I am so excited to welcome Rose McIver to the show because her new series, Ghosts, is an utter delight, an absolute must-watch. Rose, huge congratulations on Ghosts. Thank you so much. We're so grateful and excited that people seem to love it and enjoy it. And hopefully they get a good time watching it because we want to keep making it forever. <laughs> really, really. I mean, it's, it is the definition of a good time to me. And it feels like the type of content that I need right now. So thank you for providing that. Thank you. So I didn't warn you about this. The first thing we do on Ladies Night is we use this dice tower behind me. Mm-hmm. I've got a list of eight random questions here. I roll the die three times and whatever I land on, that's where we start at least. Love it. Sounds great. All right. First one up. Going with an eight. Number eight is, ah, oh, it's a fun one, game show. If you could be on the game show of your choice, what show would you pick and could you actually win it? Oh, um, I would like to be on um, one that's pure chance. Like I want like the Wheel of Fortune level. I don't want to have to bring any expertise. I don't want trivia. I don't want any of that. I want luck. I want cold, hard luck. And I will have as much of a chance as anybody else in it winning. <laughs> You would go Wheel of Fortune, you'd have the luck of the wheel. And are you good at solving puzzles like that? You know, um, I'm better at that than I am at any of the Quizmaster style game shows. So I guess I guess it's really a process of deduction. I'm like ending up with Wheel of Fortune because I know the others would not be my strong suit. <laughs> Fair enough. That's like me sucking at Jeopardy, but feeling okay about Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Roll number two now. We got a number five this time, which is must-haves. What is something that you can't be on set without? Whether it is your size, your notes, a certain snack, something to pass the time in between scenes, you name it. It's funny you should um, ask because I'm quite famous for carrying everything I own with me at all times. I don't know where it comes from. It must be some some sort of inherited behavior, but I, I carry like just in case I'm going to need my drink bottle, my thermos, um, my book. Uh, I've got my script, my binder, 
got an iPad and I like have it all under my arms at any given moment. And I'll move like 10 feet and I'll carry it just in case like I need it. It's just quite bizarre. It's got to be some sort of hoarding style technique. <laughs> this visual is making me feel better about myself because my friends are always picking on me because I'm always the person to go out with like everything in my hands or pockets. Like, why yeah. can't I just get a bag? I have to make it more difficult on myself for some reason. Exactly. I've had family say it's like me carrying around on my teddy bears. It's the same sort of mentality. It's like, just in case I need all these mates. Maybe just holding them is like a security blanket of sorts. Exactly. Exactly. I know. I'd hate to take it to a therapist. All right. I got one more uh, roll on the tower for you. Right now we got a number three. Number three is never again. What is something that you did for a role that now looking back makes you say, I'm very glad I tried that, but never again? Uh, dirt boarding. I had to dirt board, which not only is just like, it's like a mountain, like wheeled snowboarding is what I would compare it to. It's like these giant tired boards that you ride down a mountain and you literally stop by crashing into a tree that's like the that's sort of the thing is like well you're gonna bail at the end of the thing so just try to bail as well as you can um but not only that dirt board was like the hardest word i've ever said in an american accent as well dirt board it was just a particularly like r forward and actually i had to say the line a dirt border's girlfriend and i was like couldn't get my mouth around it so dirt boarding is is a never again for me i think in a movie or probably in real life. I feel like even though you're calling it a never again, that description of it kind of makes me want to try it, even though I'm sure it would break something. For sure. For sure. I mean, I had like a six foot male stunt double in a long blonde wig trying to kind of make me look impressive on the slopes. And then it would cut into my like head, just looking completely traumatized as I staggered off this thing. It was very strange. Very strange what, job. What project was this for? So I can go look it up. <laughs> Uh, Johnny Capahala back on board the Disney Channel original film that we shot in New Zealand. All right. I am, I'm definitely going to do my homework after this. Now we get into the meat of the interview. Now we start all the way back at the very, very beginning. What is the, the movie, the show, the performance, personal experience, you name it, that first made you say, I have to be an actor? I have that weird story of kind of stumbling into it as a kid. And I'm always so wary to say this because it makes my mum sound like a stage mum and she's really, really not. My brother and I both got scouted. Well, my brother got scouted in a bank when he was like three, just talking on one of those toy, um, you know, a toy phone at like the kids play area or whatever. And some person who was casting a commercial was like, oh, he's really sort of verbal. You should have him, you know, come and do this thing. And my mum was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure. And sort of ended up thinking, oh, what's, what harm can it do? And he did like one commercial. And New Zealand is about one degree of separation at any given moment. So like he met, you know, they met somebody on this commercial shoot that said, Oh, could he be in my short film? And um, it was always like, like the way kids would sort of play tennis or do ballet or anything else. It was like a, a, a hobby that we kind of, that my brother was able to do. So anyway, when he was about four, I guess he got um, put in this short film and I was born by that point And I was there with my mum, and they like, um, said, oh, you know, they're supposed to be a toddler. Would would the mother be able to, you know, the actor, actor mother character be able to hold the baby as well? Mum was like, oh, I guess, sure. And um, so then I was in something when I was about two years old. It was like a short film by a woman called Eileen O'Sullivan, who's a really um, wonderful New Zealand filmmaker. And 
then it's sort of just a steady string of like tiny little one day here and there people who knew people's projects. Um, I was really lucky I was in The Piano, the Jane Campion film, when I was three, doing, one, again, one day. And it's not acting when you're that old. It's like just being and just sort of hovering around. And, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't have colossal tantrums, you're going to fare better than a kid who does. Um, so I kind of just had a bunch of incidental things like that. And then when I was at school, I was never really allowed to take, to take significant time off school or anything. So it was always like every now and then, um, you know, once a year I would do like a week on Xena or Hercules or something like that. Just all the sh shows that shot in New Zealand. And it just kind of kept happening. And I finished high school and sort of tried to do other things, but I kept coming back to it. Um, and here we are, I'm 33 and I'm still sort of pinching myself that it's what I've ended up doing. It's very strange. It sort of crept up on me, but um, I can't imagine doing anything else that I enjoy as much. Somewhat unrelated, but you have to see Power of the Dog. It's got me on a, on a Jane kick right now. Oh my God, it's so good. I can't wait. My sweet friend Thomas and Mackenzie is in that movie. Um, <gasps> she was actually just on Ladies Night. I think she was my last guest actually for Last Night in Soho. And she is like, jaw-dropping oh. in that movie oh she's such a darling her mum is my acting coach who I've had since I was a teenager so I've known Thomason since she was four five something like that yeah she's an old old sweet so, cool. so make amazing. something together oh god yeah yeah just I'll, I'll do what I can you know from your lips to god's ears <laughs> <laughs> I like to manifest things. All right. So we've got the story of how you kind of fell into acting and got that momentum going. But do you remember the first time that you realized you needed to act in terms of, you know, when a performance just felt so right that it became more of a more than a career goal, but rather, you know, a feeling, a creative feeling that you needed to keep having? Yeah, the, the standout for me, funnily, was Xena. When I was nine, I did an episode of Xena where it was when Lucy Lawless was pregnant and um, she needed a light episode. So they wrote this episode where her soul gets put into the body of a little girl. Um, I can't even remember quite what the conceit was. But anyway, I played Xena, but in the nine-year-old girl's body. And it was the first time where it was really taking something on. I remember Lucy generously like recorded all of these cassettes that I still have of her doing the war cry or um, her talking about, you know, choices that she's made as the character and just was really generous. And that was the first time, yeah, it would have been nine where I got to do pretty extensive stunts. I got to do like a flip on a harness and um, I just found the like taking over something and um, really getting lost in, in somebody else and building a character. It wasn't just saying words. It wasn't um, it, th there was kind of a lot of planning and I liked that, that, you know, sort of structuring a character and coming up with ideas for it. Um, and yeah, that was the first time mimicking her, you know, I was kind of able to try to do a bit of impersonating and it was, it was really kind of eye opening. And I thought this is so deeply creative because I think I'd often thought of acting as you're channeling somebody else's creativity or bringing somebody else's words to the screen. You're doing, um, kind of your vehicle for somebody else's idea. And this was the first time I was like, oh, there's very significant creative input you can have as well. You name drop the best people because Lucy Lawless is another one who I just like absolutely adore. And she's always such a wonderful interview, just 
talks about everything oh. with, with such passion and that makes my job very easy and very fulfilling. She's incredible. She's so inspiring. I think she's, um, you know, she was so ahead of her time in the work she was doing and um, the way she used her platform. And I, I'm a big fan, big fan. All right, let's make a jump to Power Rangers now because I grew up mighty obsessed with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And uh, I just have like a million questions about the reality of playing a Power Ranger. So maybe let's uh, maybe let's go with a twofold one here. What is, what is something specific to Power Rangers that no other set that you've ever been on needed or did in terms of the production process and what it takes to bring a show like that to screen? And then what's something about working on that show that you find coming in handy even now? Something that might have, you know, surprised you to still have an impact on you moving forward? Um, so one of the things that was uniquely um, Power Rangers was... I mean, when else do you ever go to work and fight giant monsters in rubber suits? Like even even now, I'm sure, I don't know how they shoot it now, whether how much of it is um, CGI or mocap or what they could possibly do to do it differently. But at the time, it was literally, you don't see that. You know, when people shoot these big Marvel movies and things, it's people covered in dots and, you know, in, in costume, in um, sort of green suits or in black suits or whatever. This was like literally somebody chucks on a giant rubber head and fights in like the New Zealand sun and humidity um, on a beach, like down the street from where I grew up. And it was just such a uniquely practical show. I thought like it is, there's, um, it's not as much in the, in post-production as you would imagine. It's, it's really putting on giant costumes. It kind of feels very theatrical. And so I would put on, every time I put on my Power Rangers helmet, um, a really wonderful uh, Japanese guy would um, perform on my stunts. He had like breast pads and hip pads and things, and he would do everything impressive. And then I pull the helmet off and it's me. And I'm sort of like, you can always see a difference between who's who, um, but you pull the helmet off and like finish out the moves or you know, you've just fallen off a bike and you stand up. And so it was really picking up the tail ends and pieces of, everybody else's um really hard work but it was it was just fascinating it was such a unusual experience um the adr for that show that's the one thing i don't miss was just just vocal burnout like non-stop for like hours each week um and the thing that uh i have taken away that i still use is I was always amazed because it's such a huge stunt component. So there are these really well-trained stunt teams that were there and they would use like the tiniest moments. They'd have like two minutes off and they'd lie down and do sit-ups or like star jumps or something This incidental, like squeezing in conditioning. Um, maybe this is just my excuse so that I don't have to dedicate like a full hour a day to doing any kinds of workouts, but it's, it is impressive what you can accumulate when you do like little tiny pieces especially in like a busy shooting schedule or whatever, there's not really any excuse not to like do sort of 10 sit-ups every now and then or something that just makes you feel engaged with your body. And especially when you're on set um, for significant stretches of time and you can really just rely on, you get so cerebral and so out of your body. Like it's, it's quite nice to just do little things that remind you you're in, in a little meat suit yourself. <laughs> I totally get that. I feel like that that kind of mentality took over during the pandemic when we were all stuck at home and I was just sitting in yeah. a computer chair all day. It made it very easy to kind of, you know, 
know, take take like 10 minutes at a time to do a, a virtual core class or something. Before you know it, it adds up to something that's really helping you to train. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be this, you know, we, we kind of are, I can be quite binary about like, I'm in the mindset where I'm doing a ton of exercise or I'm not. And it's kind of that nice reminder that like little bits creeping in here and there add up and can make you feel a little bit more engaged. It's not about, you know, anything other than just sort of, I don't know, getting outside your head, I find helpful. <laughs> Let's go to Lovely Bones now. So that was the first thing that I ever saw you in. And I feel like it is kind of often classified as a breakout project for you. But I want to know, does, did it truly feel that way to you when that movie came out? Could you feel, you know, the momentum pick up, the doors open? Or is that more of a, you know, a dreamlike scenario of what happens when you have your first big Hollywood project? It was the most surreal year of my life, maybe until 2020. I take that back. But, um, but at the time I was 19, I had just finished high school. Um, I, oh, I was, yeah, 18 when I auditioned, I guess I just finished high school and I auditioned. I went in, um, with like greasy hair. I'd literally come from the gym or from a workout or something. And I think I just thought it was such a long shot. I didn't get dressed up. I didn't do anything. I just was wearing like my leggings and my yoga top or whatever I was in and scrape back hair in a ponytail and put down this tape and kind of didn't overthink it. And then assumed nothing was going to happen. And about two months later, got a kind of cold call out of nowhere saying, can you come down and meet Peter Jackson in Wellington tomorrow kind of thing. And um, I did. And actually when I flew down was when I met Miranda, uh, who's Thomas and Mackenzie's mum. Miranda Harcourt was coaching on that film and I met her and it suddenly all felt like it was kind of a callback, but it was a read through. It was this sort of surreal experience. And I had planned to do what in New Zealand we call your OE. It's like your overseas experience. And your first year out of high school, you often go and do like backpacking in Thailand or Europe or something. And, and I had booked this trip and we were camping through Eastern Europe, me and two girlfriends. And it still felt like, enough of a long, like, even though I'd got this callback, I kind of was like, I don't want to miss this trip and, you know, say no to this. And then not, then the job doesn't work out. And I end up just with nothing to do. So I still went on the trip. And I remember it was way pre cell phones that as we have them now and our plans that we have now, and it cost a fortune to call internationally. So I just had like a $20 top up card with like texts on it. And I got texted from my agent in New Zealand halfway through that trip telling me I'd booked it. And I was like camping in Bosnia or something at the time and didn't even get on the phone about it. It was just like, yes, it's come through. And we, I think we even negotiated via text. Like they came up with the deal and everything. And it was really weird. Um, but it was, I mean, it was completely life-changing for me. I went and filmed in Pennsylvania um, for three months and got to work with, you know, the New Zealand royalty, Peter Jackson and Fran and Philippa. And we shot this this film that I'm, I'm proud of. I mean, it was, a, I love the novel so much. I'm very uh, attached to those characters and that story. And it was, yeah, completely surreal and remarkable. And I mean, even just being in filming in American high schools, it's the stuff that I'd seen on television growing up so much and cafeterias and cheerleading teams. And we were filming and we went researched in amongst these things and, it was just, um, I mean, the most fish out of water kind of experience that I've had, but it, it was, it was wonderful. And then I went home and life just kind of goes on, you know, the film didn't come out for another year after that. And, 
I remember people saying to me, you should stay in LA now. And this is, and it just all felt so strange and um, kind of whimsical. And I didn't know whether there was, I didn't really buy that it was going to go anywhere. I, I, I don't know. I didn't, didn't want to count my chickens before they hatched. So I went back home and I went, started at university and um, didn't have very much discipline at university and kind of stuck, stuck around there a bit, um, worked in like retail for a year or two, the equivalent of like um, Forever 21 or whatever. I just got a job, just had a sort of weird year where I was first year out of high school, kind of learning how to be an adult. And then, then the film came out and then I sort of, started getting a few more opportunities and it's still, I mean, the move out to LA, I moved out to LA a year after that. It, it didn't, um, it wasn't like I swanned in and every door was open. I mean, I was so lucky that it did create definitely some opportunities, but I still got out here and, you know, I had to battle to find a flat and take weird music video jobs in the desert and, you know, just try to cobble something together and work out why I'd, why I'd left home. And um, it's kind of been, I never really am convinced that it's like all all sorted now. And now my career is going to be great. It's like I keep kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop at some point and be like, well, good to have. No, but it's true. You feel like that. Um, it's I don't think anything's a given. And I think it's a nice way to feel. I feel really appreciative that um, everything that comes along still feels so exciting to me. Um, that I still kind of I'm aware what a privilege it is to to do this job. Um, and that it could go away because these things can. Um, it's nice. It's it's kind of it's really important to me. That feeling is inevitable when you find something that you do and you truly love. I mean, I, yeah. I feel that every single day, and I wouldn't want to live a day of my life any other way. Yeah, yeah, and I just know how insanely rare that is on this planet to be able to do that. So, kind of, it is quite a surreal thing when you stop and think about it. Oh, absolutely. All right, let's jump over to Once Upon a Time. I'm curious with that one, is there anything about jumping into a show like that with, you know, such a massive and powerful fan base that maybe wound up helping you prepare for the enthusiasm that you would eventually experience when you went on to headline iZombie? Yeah, very much. I mean, I had a great time on that show. It was incredible to get to play Tinkerbell, play this kind of icon that, you know, I known as a kid and then you're suddenly getting to embody that as an adult it's it's a really special feeling um the fan base for that show is unreal it is so supportive and and I I have sort of weirdly fallen into just so much genre in my life between Power Rangers and Xena and Hercules and um Once Upon a Time and iZombie and everything it's like I, I do seem to kind of fall into these shows work into these shows where there's just like um, a very creative community that support them and people who do a lot of like their own cosplays and fan fiction and illustrations. And it's, it's been a really, um, it's not a show. None of these have been shows that people kind of just disengage or, you know, watch and kind of leave afterwards. It's like, it seems to kind of build this um, collective creative thing that happens out of them. And I mean, I've done so many conventions over the years and I'm always just blown away by, um, people's dedication. I love the idea that people have met community through uh, these kinds of shows and found other people like-minded on the internet. It's like the best parts of the internet that somebody who could feel kind of isolated in their own life suddenly taps into this vein of like people who like the same things that they do. And um, I think it's kind of a showcase of some of the best things 
about about people like when you go to a convention and you see people from all over the world who've met online in these forums and and really encourage each other and um it's very touching i think it's one of the absolute top reasons why i can't wait for that kind of convention environment to come back i feel like i've been too far removed from it from too long and you know i I miss that that kind of face-to-face interaction with that community yeah yeah totally um and and just the imagination in it too like you kind of there's a childlike imagination that we're allowed to still tap into as adults when we get into a show like that and um I don't know that's that's refreshing especially right now (laughs) oh absolutely what about the idea of just headlining your own series because at that point you had been on so many sets so on those past projects tv or film was there anyone who was you know the big star or number one on the call sheet that did something to set the tone on set that when you hit iZombie you're like I want to bring that to my set now yeah, I I think I had done a show in New Zealand when I was a teenager called Madigan's Quest. It's another genre show. Um, it's, it's like a traveling circus, post-apocalyptic traveling circus. So a dime a dozen. Um, and I played a tightrope walker in that. And I was the lead in that show when I was 15. And that, um, even though that was, you know, obviously a much smaller scale and filmed in New Zealand and had a lot of people I knew who were involved, I had had the experience of the day in, day out sort of machinery of, what it is to lead a show and um, just the sheer kind of the the work hours, the prep that you need to do. I kind of built some of my processes a little bit on that, I think, Um, and sort of figured out what's important and who in the crew does what and how to kind of, you know, make sure everybody feels heard. And um, that, that sort of set me up in a really interesting way, I think, um, back in New Zealand. And there's a few actors who I worked with in New Zealand. There's a lady called Danielle Cormack, who was on that show actually too. She's an Australian actor who did a show called Wentworth for the last sort of 10 years or something. Uh, she's a Kiwi actor who did a show in Australia. Um, but anyway, there was lots of people like her who I looked up to as a kid. And I just thought, um, yeah, she's, she's, we did like six projects together in New Zealand. And I think I remember looking at her approach to building characters and uh, she was definitely a standout to me where I thought, um, she just, nothing, she was, she was never too good or too cool for anything or too, she just gave so much of herself to everything she did. And she, um, took, cared, just cared a lot. And I think, um, I've never been cool. Cool is not my thing. I I would rather not be too. I'm like, okay, with being, uh, sort of more interested in, in, in doing a good job and trying and putting myself out there and maybe embarrassing myself and failing, which has happened plenty than like just worrying about how I come across. So I think I took that going into iZombie was just like, this is a crazy opportunity. It's, I know I'd been in LA long enough and knew how hard people work to try to get jobs like this. And um, they're rare as hen's teeth when it's going to be working with people you love and on a script that you love and so I just was, I was, I was really ready and I was ready to take it seriously and try to build upon the things that I'd learned. And so I put quite a lot of myself into that show for five years and so did everybody who worked on it. I mean, our crew were incredible. Um, and yeah, I think it's like just, I was very lucky. I was very supported by the people who I worked with and, and vice versa. I think we all, um, knew that it's a vulnerable thing to kind of be trying to figure yourself out and do this for the first time on a big, big sort of 
for us it was like a you know big network show that we'd never done anything like most of us so there's kind of a um it, it helps when you all feel like you're doing it together you're all kind of um looking out for each other and yeah so i zombie with it i booked it i did an audition and like booked it um you these things happen so fast when you get a pilot i was very excited but you kind of don't really know what the show is it, you don't know i sort of said yes i'll do this great and then suddenly I'm in Vancouver for the next five years uh, based on a decision made within 24 hours. Um, and I just felt so lucky that that was the one that it could happen to because it could be anything, you know. Um, it could be somewhere I didn't like with people I didn't sort of understand or get along with as well. So felt like that was kind of a dream, a dream scenario to get that job. Bringing up the, the process of, you know, making a pilot and then getting it picked up. How, how did that how did maybe the iZombie experience and other shows that you've done compare to what Ghosts was like? Because, you know, you make the pilot and then I know that there were production changes when you finally got picked up where it's, you know, not in the same house. And then on top of that, we just find out that you get picked up for the full series. So is, is that basically the standard or is there anything unique about the process of working with CBS on Ghosts that made that process unique? Well, this last two years obviously has changed the whole rhythm of everything so it was very soon we did our read through our big table read we didn't even have we hadn't cast um jay's role my husband's role um we did a read through on a friday and we were due to start shooting on the monday still missing three characters i think trying to worry about getting them cast over the weekend and after the read through that afternoon was when national emergency was declared and everything shut down and so everybody said at the time oh it'll be two weeks and, um, and then we all know what happened and so it was a that they can be kind of a long gestation process anyway where it's like you make the pilot and then you wait and find out what's going to happen but this was like read through in march shot the pilot in december got picked up the next march started shooting the next july it felt like by the time we got on set to shoot the first season it felt like a sort of six-year reunion or something i don't know like everybody had been communicating so much everybody knew each other it didn't in a way that I think really served the show um, because especially in a first season, you're normally building rapport still with your fellow actors and kind of finding your dynamics. And we had all, whether it was just on zoom or text or whatever, we kind of had really started to get a rhythm between us and we'd all understood a little bit how we each work and um, what's funny and what, you know, who, who we each kind of play as the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle. So that was actually, that was a weird, very positive um element of it but yeah very very strange sort of drawn out experience to get to where we are and we're all just like it's surreal we're on a two-week hiatus right now about to shoot the um, final five episodes of the season and um yeah I mean just so happy people seem to resonate with it and you can spend two years building something up and then it could be a disaster and nobody kind of likes it or engages so we're all pinching ourselves it seems to be landing <laughs> It is. It's like an undeniable joy. Like I find it to be one of those things where I want to go up to someone and say, "Like, watch this," and I dare you not to smile. Try not to smile at least once during the show. It feel it. It is just that kind of you know, like an infectious, warm family type vibe. And, you know, it also boasts a really ingenious concept too, that it's got like a wish fulfillment quality and we will get to that. That's so nice of you to say. That's really lovely. Yeah. We feel like um, it's hopefully there's somebody who makes you smile at least and somebody you identify with. And the, there's such a great um, mixed bag of cast 
the characters are all, you know, from such different eras and cultures and um, demographics. And it's, it's just, hopefully there's somebody for everybody to feel like they identify with. And, um, and it might be somebody who surprises you too, who might not be who you expect. What about the production challenges of shooting a show like this? Cause you know, you got one character who can see the ghosts, someone else who does not. Does that mean you have to almost shoot everything twice in order to get both versions of, uh, of what the room is looking like? Yes, we do. Um, we mainly cover it with everybody there. That's basically how we treat it. And then we do one pass because we shoot in Montreal. They say sans fantôme instead of uh, ghostless, but um, it's the sans fantôme pass, which is when they all get out and it's just Utkash and I, um, if we're both in the scene. And, you know, there's there's tricks with both sides of it. Like it's, it's trickier for me when everybody's gone and I'm still trying to remember whose eye lines to play to. But for him, he has to ignore them all of the time anyway. So, and he has to do that for longer stretches than I do. You know, his, his challenge is for the majority of the footage. Mine is just in a few of the, of the shots. So um, it is a technical show. It's a very technical show. Um, there's a, a big cast with, you know, lots of improvisers in there, people trying to work out how to find each other, how to find our moments, when to pipe up, when not. Um, and it's just getting stronger and stronger, I think. Like, I'm in awe of some of the skills that I'm surrounded by every day. And I'm not from an improv background. That's something that I'm, I'm enjoying a lot, but it's not my, it's not what I was trained in. So being with these kind of pros who have just done that their whole lives, it's phenomenal to watch and um, lots to learn. I truly would not know that just from watching the show. Your, your timing is impeccable. The timing oh. and the tone is always spot on for everyone. Oh, thank you. So with Sam in particular, I'm wondering if there's any particular, you know, a scene or a beat earlier on in season one that kind of helped really put the character into perspective for you. Yeah, I think at the end of the second episode where I walk in and say, okay, I can see you all. I identify everybody in the room. I say, I'm done trying to pretend you don't exist now. But what do you need? Like, what do you need? And that sums Sam up for me is like, she's sort of the family therapist um, in my mind. And she kind of is trying to make sure everybody can get along. Everybody gets what they need. She's calling people out on their behavior when she doesn't like it, but she's also, um, you know, she's just as partial as anybody else to being sucked into the drama too. And um, it is a very managerial quality to her. And I think that summed it up where it was, her control issues tend to be, um, I think always rooted in her wanting everybody to be happy all the time in the show. So um, she gets it wrong for sure. And we see that more and more, but, but I think I, I can empathize with her um, reasons for trying to, to kind of corral all of these crazy roommates into some sort of semblance of like cohesion. <laughs> with that being a really strong core quality of the character, do you ever find it difficult to tackle story points where she's making a purely selfish decision? I was just watching the the flower episode and at, at one point I didn't imagine her taking the plunge and doing that, but I feel like you also convey the drive with her career to kind of make me understand why, but is when you read a script like that, is, is there any moment where you're like, this isn't what she would do and this is not what I want her to do? Well, our job as an actor is to figure out how it is what she would do. It's like, you know, there are very sort of specific circumstances where you might go, this really doesn't make sense to me. But most of the time we're all such contradictory beings like we all are a bit of this and a bit of that and I even think with the episode with Flower where she's 
you know, wanting to kind of sell this article that um, is not, it, you know, is going against what her friend and roommate has asked her to do. But she's, it's still, I play it from a place of people pleasing. She's trying to please the editor. She's like worried that she's not enough for him, that she's worried that she's trying to keep somebody else happy and deliver something that then she, you know, it's, it's, it's the same person to me. You can find a way in with most of those things. Um, and it's not to say, uh, even though I, I talk about her a lot as being very accommodating and it's a show about accommodation and she's trying to accommodate the people around her a lot. Um, and Within that, I think there's room for selfish behaviors or behaviors that even though she might think she's doing the right thing, um, definitely set back the team a little bit. It's such an interesting character to explore in this. I think it's an interesting character to explore in any genre because it's, you know, it's someone who has the the foundation of always being good and doing the right things and not being able to process when something is selfish or wrong. And it just makes for a far more complex way to add layers to a character. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely close to home for me, um, a sense of like uh, when you're trying to please, you cannot please everybody all of the time. So it's it's sort of about um, rewiring yourself. Like, you know, hopefully throughout the show, she sort of has to learn how to let her values lead her rather than her desire to keep everybody happy. Um, and that, you know, maybe then there's sort of, there's moments of conflict, but there will hopefully be less um absolute kind of um, dissolving of uh, of the community, which is what's happening several times already, as we've seen in the show. Off topic, but have you ever seen Sex Education? I haven't seen it yet. Do I need to? There's a great, there's a great uh, people pleaser through line in, in episode, mm. in uh, season three, that is just incredibly effective oh. and, you know, two completely different types of comedy, but I could see some slim similarities yeah. in both oh, and it's very effective. Thank you. Yeah, highly recommend. Um, this next, like, I don't even have a good question about this next thing, but Jurassic Park is my favorite movie of all time. So just like round of applause for all of those A plus Jurassic Park references in that episode. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the writers gave so much magic to work with, but Utkash was definitely improvising on that as well. And, um, you know, credit where credit's due for both of them, because when they create these strong scripts, I do think sometimes when we talk about um, how much the cast improvise, I'm wary of making it sound like we're not given this incredible material to begin with, which we are. Um, I think it, it really speaks to the confidence of the Joes, the showrunners, the co-writers, um, when they're able to bring something so, so strong to us and then really confidently know that if there's a way that somebody can improve it, then throw it in because it's it's only ever going to enhance the product. So um, yeah, I feel really lucky that we're given an incredible launch pad, but then some creative freedom as well for if there's moments like um, Utkash happens to be a Jurassic Park nut. So he had some really great stuff up his sleeves. <laughs> I love that so much. All right, before I let you go, we have one more game to play and we're going to lean into the uh, the wish fulfillment quality of ghosts a little bit here. We are going to build your very own ghost-filled house. And the first thing we need to do is we need to have you pinpoint a location. What what type of, of home do you want and where in the world do you want it to be? Oh, you know, I've been out of New Zealand for a long time and I'm pretty homesick. So I'm going to say Piha Beach is my favorite beach in New Zealand. It's like a big black sand wild surf beach. It's very close to where I grew up. Sounds like an excellent choice to me. So now you can have a, a ghost from the past living with you. Anyone you want, who do you pick and why? Ah, uh, maybe like um, 
quite like the idea of like a a relative from like 10 generations ago um really go back there somebody that I'm I'm just amazed where us being here is evidence that something they did worked that we survived you know um maybe some sort of uh inherited like wisdom from somebody 10 generations ago that's what I'd take this next one I'm calling the entertainment ghost because I feel like there's great value in having a ghost on hand who can just offer some good entertainment no matter the form but I guess I, I kind of have to get dark with this one. So you can oh, lure yeah. a favorite performer to this home and, you know, do what needs Kill to be them. done to turn him into a ghost. Who do you pick and why? Oh, um, I am going to take, um, who am I going to take? Maybe like, oh, oh, this is so tricky. Hang on. I'll take, I'll take, um, T Murph, who I worked with on Ghosts, oh, Ghosts, on Woke, a show a couple of years ago. His name's T Murph. He's a comedian from Chicago. And he is just a joke machine. That guy is like just one liner after one liner after one liner. I feel like you could literally, I would want to be able to check out a little at this, you know, ghost house and just kind of watch and get, like, not have to um, engage too much. And I feel like you could turn him on like a television and just watch. So that's that's what I would do. Smart pick right there. This next one is the the ghost ghost. You can take one ghost from the show and have them live with you. Who do you pick? Oh, um, I think I pick, um, oh, probably Richie, um, Pete, because he's just so optimistic. He'd be so, um, you know, He'd be able to find the silver lining in any cloud. I'd take that, yeah. All right, smart one there too. This next thing is, I'm just going to call it TV time. So the ghosts on Ghost, like binging shows. So if everyone wanted to be binging a show, what show would you want them to pick so that you could enjoy it as well? Oh, uh, I would I would pick Love on the Spectrum. That's my favorite show. Um, have you seen Love on the Spectrum? I have never seen it, but I've heard great things. It's so good. And again, just showcasing some of the best, most um, like heartful, beautiful sides of humanity. Um, it just makes me feel really good, that show. Yeah, that's what I'd I like that. All right, so this this last one is, is your best friend to live in the house with you. You can invite a real life friend to come live there because they are the most likely person to believe you when you tell them that you could see ghosts. Who is that friend? That friend uh, would be Jennifer Morrison, who um, is from Once Upon a Time. She, you know, the amount that we had to believe on that show, I remember her talking about having to really invest in the belief in this, the powers of like this coconut that she carried around as like a, um, like a handbag or something. The amount that she's had to suspend like reality and believe things in that show um, she's also like one of my best friends. So I think that would, she would, she would be kind of able to get on board and be earnest and commit to like, all right, this is happening. Um, she'd take me seriously, I think. <laughs> I think you built a pretty good house there. I would definitely love to like come over, hang out and experience some of this. So job, job very well done. Perfect. I do have to let you go now, Aww. but before, before we say goodbye, huge, huge, huge congratulations on ghosts and also everything that you've accomplished. But for right now, to anybody out there who has not done the Ghosts binge, trust me when I tell you, it will be such a wonderful source of light in your life. You will love it. Please check it out. And again, Rose, congratulations on this and everything. And 
I hope to have you on Ladies Night again soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope to as well. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.